Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you to all of you who've been supporting the Logical Bible Study podcast. I really appreciate your feedback. And remember, you can interact with me and ask questions at any time just by emailing logicalbiblestudy at gmail.com. So in this podcast, we take a look at the gospel reading from the day's mass, and we want to try and give you the tools to do an exegesis. So really diving into the literal uh, the literal reading of the text. Today's reading at Mass is from John chapter 8, verse 1 to 11, and it's quite a well-known passage, though there might be some aspects of this that you perhaps haven't heard before. So let's start by reading the passage, John chapter 8, verse 1 to 11. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At daybreak he appeared in the temple again, and as all the people came to him, he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman along who had been caught committing adultery and making her stand there in full view of everybody. They said to Jesus, Master, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery and Moses has ordered us in the law to condemn women like this to death by stoning. What have you to say? They asked him this as a test, looking for something to use against him. But Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. As they persisted with their question, he looked up and said, If there is one of you who has not sinned, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he bent down and wrote on the ground again. When they heard this, they went away one by one, beginning with the eldest, until Jesus was left alone with the woman, who remained standing there. He looked up and said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she replied. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go away and do not sin any more. So this passage is well known by lots of people and it has brought um, comfort for a lot of people and it really does highlight to us the mercy of Jesus and of God. Now this particular passage from John chapter 8 is probably the hardest passage in all of the Gospels to work out where it came from or its history because there's something strange about the language that's used in this passage here. So John chapter 8, what we have as verse 1 to 11 does not appear in any major Greek copy of John before the 6th century, although it does appear in Latin copies. So that's a bit strange, because every other part of John does appear quite early on in Greek, but this one only shows up in Greek a bit later on. So different manuscripts treat this story differently. Some ancient manuscripts have this story at the end of John's Gospel, right after everything else has happened, Other manuscripts have it after Luke chapter 21, so some would say it actually originally came from Luke and it was moved to the Gospel of John. And then other manuscripts don't have this passage in the New Testament at all. So there's something about this passage that has meant that at some point it's been lost or moved around. Most scholars today would say that what we've read here, John chapter 8 verse 1 to 11, was originally part of the Synoptic Gospels, probably Luke, so it probably was part of Luke's Gospel. But then at some point, maybe some of the the scribes who are responsible for copying the text 
they didn't like what it implied in the Gospel of Luke. They said maybe it shows that Jesus is too merciful and that he doesn't care about sin. This is the theory scholars have. So perhaps these scribes, who were quite strict scribes, and they didn't like this story, they tried to move it to John's Gospel. That is actually the dominant theory of um, where this story came from. In any case, regardless of who wrote the story originally, the church considers this to be an inspired text. God has inspired the writing of this story, regardless of who wrote it originally. And this really did happen. This is a story of a real scene that happened um, towards the end of Jesus's life in the temple. We're just not sure whether Luke wrote it, whether John wrote it, or whether someone else wrote it. So verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So what's happened just before this in John is there's been a confrontation in the in the temple about his identity, and it's the end of the day, so he goes to the Mount of Olives now to pray, probably all night, because he does spend a lot of his nights praying on the mountains. The Mount of Olives is just outside of Jerusalem, so he just goes um, a little bit outside of the city, prays there all night, and then at daybreak, so he's starting his ministry early, he goes back to the temple the next day. This is the last part of Jesus's life here. And he spends quite a bit of time in the temple, teaching as many people as will listen. And as all the people came to see him, he sat down and began to teach them. And this is what a rabbi would do. There was parts of the temple where a rabbi, a uh, well-known teacher, could sit and teach people about God. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And all these crowds are coming to him. Verse 3, now the scribes and the Pharisees, so these are the leaders of the common Jewish people, not the highest authorities, so we're not talking about the Sanhedrin here, we're talking about the common Jewish leaders. And basically, there's a lot we could say about them, but they specialised in the law, and they wanted to ensure that all Jews followed the law quite strictly. So they come to Jesus and they're going to try and trap him, as they often do. They brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. So adultery here meaning having relations with someone who was not her husband. Maybe she was married, maybe she wasn't, we're not sure, but she certainly was having relations with a man that she shouldn't have been having because the man was not her husband. So the law of Moses required that if someone was caught in the act of adultery, then they should be brought before the court to be punished. And in fact, the people themselves could put the person to death. Now, there might be an element of sexism here, because the law of Moses says that you should bring both parties to be stoned, the man and the woman, not just the woman, although here they've just brought the woman, so maybe they're being a bit biased and allowing the man to get away, but not the woman. So some scholars think there's clear sexism here on the part of the Pharisees, which is certainly possible. Or maybe the man ran away and they couldn't catch him. So they bring her to Jesus... Normally, you would bring it to sort of a public law court, but here they bring him to bring her to Jesus. They want to see what Jesus' reaction is going to be. They're trying to trap Jesus. They believe that if he's the true Messiah, then he's going to require strict implementation of the law because that was their view of what the Messiah would do. He would make sure everyone on the entire world followed the Jewish law. But they reckon that Jesus isn't going to command that. So they think they're going to be able to trap Jesus here and reveal to the public that he's a fraud and he's not the Messiah. So that's their plan. So they make her stand there in the full view of everybody, 
Now, often in videos and stuff, you'll see this as though it's outside in the desert or something. This is in the temple. It's in the court of the temple. Very public place. She's standing there in full view of the general Jewish public here. And that's where a person was required to stand if they're accused of a capital crime. They have to stand out in full view of everybody. And we see evidence of that in Sirach chapter 23, verse 22 to 24. That's where a person would stand if they've been accused of a capital crime, because it needs to be a public execution. And so you can imagine what she's feeling. She's probably feeling deeply ashamed and deeply afraid that she's about to die. So they say to Jesus, Master or teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. So in this case, it's not just a suspicion. They don't just suspect she's been caught in adultery. They actually saw her do it. And they go on, Moses has ordered us in the law. Now this is, you can find this in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22 to 24, where Moses does specifically give the punishment for adultery. Moses has ordered us in the law to condemn women like this to death by stoning. So firstly, what is stoning? It involved picking up rocks and in this part of the world, there's quite large rocks the person would have to stand there in the middle and then the general public, and this is quite a lot of people, would all pick up big stones and throw them at the person. Eventually, the person would die because a big stone would hit them in the head. So it's capital punishment, basically. Or perhaps not capital punishment because it's not the state doing it, but it's death uh, by the rest of the people putting the, putting the person to death. Now, they have correctly applied the law here. The Pharisees are not twisting it. The law of Moses does require that if someone is caught in adultery and it's known that they've committed adultery, then they are to be put to death. That is correct. Why is that? Because adultery breaks one of the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments specifically says, thou shall not commit adultery. So a clear violation of this, where it's known that the person has done it, according to Moses, the correct uh, punishment is death by stoning. But once again, this penalty doesn't just apply to women. It applies to men as well. So it's interesting that the Pharisees say here, Moses has ordered us in the law to condemn women like this to death by stoning. Well, it's actually men as well. So now they turn to Jesus. What have you to say? They asked him this as a test, looking for something to use against him. So they think they've put him in a trap here. They, the, the scribes and the Pharisees know that Jesus has a reputation of welcoming sinners. They've worked that out. So they want to see if they bring him a clear example of a terrible sinner, is he going to apply the Mosaic law to the sinner like he should if he's the true Messiah? And if he doesn't do that, and they reckon he's not going to do it, then they can claim, and they can clearly show to the public that this man is not the Messiah. So that's their plan. So they ask him the question, Jesus doesn't respond. Instead, verse 6, he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. This is the only time we see Jesus writing in the Gospels. So this tells us that Jesus was indeed educated, and he knew how to write at least. Although he didn't have an occupation that required writing, he does know how to write. Now, what is he writing here? It would be great if we knew what he wrote on the ground. Remember, he's in the temple courts here. Apparently, even John, the writer of this passage, or Luke, if it turns out to be Luke, whoever it was, they don't know what Jesus wrote. There's three main views on what Jesus may have written. 
One view says that Jesus isn't writing anything of significance. He's just ignoring their question. He's just sort of pretending not to hear their question and he starts kind of doodling on the ground. That's one view. A second view is that he might have written the Ten Commandments. And this is a very popular view. And the reason we think that is because of what he says next. Um, What he says next kind of implies that they have read what he's written on the ground. And maybe it has something to do with listing sins. So maybe he writes the Ten Commandments. There's another view, though, which thinks there's a more specific link to an Old Testament passage. Jeremiah verse, sorry, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13 says, O Yahweh, all who abandon you will be put to shame. Those who turn away will be written in the earth because they have abandoned the fountain of living waters. And so the idea is in that passage in Jeremiah, those who turn away from God because they reject him as the fountain of living water will have their name kind of written in the earth, metaphorically, um, as a testament to the fact that they rejected God. So this theory would say that by Jesus has knelt down in his writing, Jeremiah 17 verse 13, in the ground, and by doing that, he will be reminding the accusers of the woman that they too are sinners and that they're subject to God's judgment, particularly because they refuse to come to him and he, by this point, Jesus has already claimed that he is the fountain of living water. So that's John chapter 7, verse 37, where he claims that. So on this view, Jesus is saying, because you have rejected me, the fountain of living water, you are also sinners. And he wants them to realize that. So that's those are the three main views. But ultimately, we don't know what he wrote. Now, remember, where is this taking place? Probably in the outer court part of the temple. Certainly not in the inner part of the temple where the rituals happen, but in the outdoor part of the temple, it looks like, is where Jesus is kneeling down and where the woman is standing. Verse 7, they persisted with their question. So Jesus hasn't answered their question yet, so they keep persisting and asking him, what do you have to say, Jesus? Then Jesus replies, if there is one of you who has not sinned, Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So this famous line of Jesus. There's lots of elements of this that could be brought out. What's happening on the literal level? Well, Jesus here is addressing his comments primarily at the scribes and the Pharisees, probably not the crowd in general. He's addressing their specific question. So what does he mean by this phrase? If there is one of you who has not sinned, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. I think on the literal level, Jesus is saying this. Yes, she does deserve this punishment. However, can any of you say that he has never committed a sin for which you deserve similar punishment? So Jesus wants them to recognize that probably they've all committed sins that deserve um, death, probably, according to the law. Um, And he wants them to think about that before they decide to enact the punishment on the woman. So this is a call that Jesus is making for them, the accusers, to recognize the truth about themselves with respect to God and to others. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, don't throw a stone at her. Okay, he doesn't say that. Uh, Because the law does require someone like this to be put to death. And so he's not going to deny the law. But what he is doing is he's putting it back on them as the Jewish leaders to determine whether they want to enact the stoning punishment in this particular case. He's putting it back on them. They're trying to put it on him, and he's putting it back on them as the Jewish leaders. 
He's getting them to think about whether they want to enact the... It is a just punishment. It is what she deserves, but he's putting it back on them. So, as we're about to find out, the Jewish leaders consider consider their options and they decide, for whatever reason, they're not going to enact the punishment in this particular case. Verse 8. Then he bent down and wrote on the ground again. So, Jesus continues what he was writing. He goes back to what he was doing. And he just lets them think about what he said. Apparently, whatever he's writing here is making them reflect in some way on their own sin. Verse 9, beginning with the eldest, and so the eldest Pharisee was considered to be the most authoritative. Whatever the eldest did, the other Pharisees would then follow. They took their cues from the eldest Pharisee. So the first of the eldest went away, and then the others followed one by one. So they all just leave. They leave the temple. Why do they leave? You'll often hear it said, and this was certainly how I've always understood it, is that they feel ashamed themselves. They feel convicted by what Jesus has said, and they're having a genuine conversion moment where they're going away saying, wow, he's right, we're all sinners. That's how I've understood it, but having done a little bit of research for this episode, scholars point out that that's not entirely consistent with what we know of the Pharisees in other places. They genuinely, well, they generally don't respond to Jesus' call to repentance. They don't believe Jesus. And it seems out of character for them to suddenly be like, wow, Jesus is right. And then to have this deep conviction and conversion moment. Usually they don't give up so easily. So that is one possibility. Maybe they are genuinely touched by what he says. But another possibility, and this is more consistent with what we know about the Pharisees, is that they just kind of went away grumpy because their plan to trap Jesus didn't work. And they haven't got anything else to say, so they leave it for now. There's another perspective to this. Um, Some people think that Jesus was trying to get a particular outcome here, and this might be true as well. So one perspective here says that Jesus is deliberately trying to get them to leave. He's trying to in Jewish terms, dismiss the witnesses. So, according to Jewish law, if there's no witnesses, then a person cannot be put to death. There has to be witnesses. And so, maybe Jesus knows this, and so he's able to ensure that the woman's life is spared by following an aspect of the Jewish law. So, it's not that Jesus is denying the Jewish punishment law here, about, you know, the woman deserving punishment. He doesn't deny that. But what he does do is he taps into another aspect of the law, which says that if you're going to put someone to death, there has to be witnesses. So maybe Jesus is cleverly and deliberately um, sending away everyone so that there are no witnesses and the woman's life can be spared. So because all the witnesses leave, it actually wouldn't be lawful uh, for anyone to stone her because there's no witnesses. That's one theory. That's not entirely clear from the text, but that's an interesting reading of it as well. And it says, until Jesus was left alone with the woman. Now, it could be, in fact, it probably is, that the crowds in general are still in their temple and they're still watching Jesus. But certainly the Pharisees and the main party who's come to question Jesus, they have left. So it's just Jesus and the woman are the main people left now. She remained standing there. So the woman doesn't try and run away. She's expecting Jesus as the rabbi to condemn her. She's waiting for Jesus to put the hammer down. And she knows that she deserves it. So she's not denying it. But then Jesus says to her, he looks up, notices that everyone's gone and says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
No one, sir, she replied, and sir, there is Lord. So Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. So we need to understand what the word condemn means. It means legally condemn, as in bring a case forward. So Jesus, when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, he doesn't mean I don't condemn your actions because Jesus clearly does condemn her actions of adultery. Let's be careful there. When he says, I don't condemn you, what he means is he's not going to press legal charges against her. Just as no one else in this situation has chosen to press legal charges, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to press legal charges either. So notice what's going on here. Jesus has a choice and Jesus is choosing not to enact the the penalty which is due to her. It is due to her to be stoned. That is what the law required. But Jesus chooses not to enact that. So clearly, Jesus here is showing great mercy. This is a story about Jesus' mercy. He's giving the woman, well, he's in fact not giving the woman what she deserves. And that's what mercy is. Now, this includes all of us. Clearly here, we can put ourselves in the same situation as the woman. There's a sense in which we all deserve death for our sins. But God loves us so much that he he chooses to show us mercy. He gives us what we don't deserve. Uh, And that is, in fact, an aspect of God's justice as well. God's mercy and God's justice are not opposed to each other. God always acts out of justice. It's just that mercy is part of his justice as well. And there's a lot that could be said about that. So there's a lot for us to reflect on as people in terms of God and Jesus uh, not giving us what we deserve and loving us and giving us grace and mercy. And then the last line here is, go away and do not sin anymore. Notice what Jesus does here. He affirms that she has committed a sin. He doesn't say, uh, you're all good, you didn't do anything wrong. He says, go away and do not sin anymore. So stop sinning, basically. So from the woman's perspective, since she has been shown mercy by Jesus, she's now expected to go and change her ways and live righteously in return for God's mercy. We're all in the same position. When we're shown mercy by God and when we're welcomed into his family and our sins are forgiven, then we're expected to change our life and sin no more as well. So a really interesting passage and one that has caused a lot of controversy throughout history based on the history of this particular text in the gospel. Now, this only appears in one brief spot in the Catechism, and that's in paragraph 583, which is in the section about Jesus and the temple. Remember, at the start of this passage, Jesus goes to the temple, and that's where the scene happens. So paragraph 583 says... Like the prophets before him, Jesus expressed the deepest respect for the temple in Jerusalem. It was in the temple that Mary and Joseph presented him 40 days after his birth. At the age of 12, he decided to remain in the temple to remind his parents that he must be about his father's business. He went there each year during his hidden life, at least for Passover. His public ministry itself was patterned by his pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the great Jewish feasts. And it appears that Jesus, in this scene, is here for a particular feast as well, the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's the only place it appears in the Catechism, but obviously a lot has been written about this um, from theological writers and people who study the Bible, so there's a lot of really cool stuff you can dive into. 
Hopefully you learned something new today. Thank you again for listening. Remember, you can leave feedback at any time. You can leave a voice recording. You can send an email. If you think people would appreciate hearing this perspective on uh, the woman caught in adultery, then I'd love it if you could share it with those people as well and leave a rating on iTunes too. Thanks again. We'll see you again tomorrow. Thank you.